Good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here on this day, kind of a rainy, uh, drizzly sort of day. Maybe because the Aggies are crying. I don't know what's, uh, <laughs> what's causing it, but whatever. We need the rain, and we celebrate that. What I want you to do is to turn to the people on either side of you and wish them a Merry Christmas. Now, isn't it wonderful to do that because there wouldn't be any such salutation had it not been for the coming of Jesus. There would be no Christmas. There would be no Merry Christmas. There would be no life everlasting had he not come. So we, in saying that, celebrate the coming of the first gift, the great gift, the supreme incomparable gift, God's gift to us through his Son. Let's join hands and thank the Lord for his incomparable gift. Dear Lord, we thank you for giving us the gift of your Son. Without him, we can do nothing. Without him, there is no answer to our prayers. Without him, there is no forgiveness for our sins. Without him, there is no light at the end of the tunnel of life. Without him, there is no one to dry tears in the time of sorrow. But with him and in him and through him, we are both now and forever more than conquerors. And we praise you and thank you for it. We pray for any here, dear Lord, today who are in special need. And all of us come, I come, we all come, asking that you meet with us. You have said that if we, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto our children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give his Spirit to them that ask him? And so I ask you, we ask you, may your Spirit be present with us today to honor your Son, whom we celebrate, whom we worship, whom we serve. Honor him through all that we say and do. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Remain standing and let's say together the scripture printed on your bulletin from Psalm 135. Together we read, Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, O servants of the Lord. You who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. I want to read a couple of verses of scripture from one of my favorite psalms. At times it is my favorite. Of course, the 23rd Psalm and the 139th Psalm rank with this in my preference, but Psalm 91 has meant so much to me. I read the first two verses and then the last verse. It is beautiful and meaningful and helpful. I urge you to read it. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then the last verse. Because he loves me, says the Lord. Because you love him, says the Lord. I will rescue him. I will protect him. For he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him 
and show him my salvation. Isn't that a marvelous promise from God? If we acknowledge his name, if we put our faith and trust in him, if we love him, listen to what he will do for us. He rescues us. He protects us. He answers us. He is with us. He delivers us. He satisfies us. And he saves us. What more could you want from the living God than this great promise from his heart to yours? Lord, for this word we thank you. For this promise we praise you. Help us, Father, to believe your promise. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to think with me this morning about what I believe to be the most forgotten man in the Bible most neglected and overlooked man in the Bible. Maybe one of the most important men in all the scripture. To give you a hint, let me ask you to use your imagination for a moment. Pretend you're God. Now, you know you're not, and I know I'm not. Uh, the most important thing any of us need to know about God, the first thing we all need to know about God is that we ain't him. You ain't him. I ain't him. We ain't him. But pretend for a moment you're God. And you're getting ready to send your son, your infant son, into a distant land that is filled with violence and pain and suffering and sin and death. And you need to pick a surrogate father. You're going to pick someone to be God the Father personal choice to teach and raise his son. Can you imagine a more important man in the history of the scripture than the man whom God picked to be his understudy, his surrogate, For his son. Well, of course, you know I'm speaking about Joseph. Forgotten, ignored man. We see him in uh, pageants. He never says anything. We see him in manger scenes, standing there, never saying anything. We hear from Mary. We worship Jesus Christ, the baby. We hear a lot about Mary as we should and revere her and respect her, but recognize that she is not the Savior. Her son is the Savior. And she was saved not because she was the mother of Jesus, but because she believed in him the same way you and I are saved. And Joseph is just standing there. 
He does not say a single word recorded in the Scripture. But his actions speak volumes. Let me touch on them briefly with some applications for me and for you and for us. First and second chapters of the Gospel according to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, you're introduced to Joseph, beginning with verse 18 of chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, her husband-to-be, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. If you go back and read the book of Exodus, he could have killed her according to the law. He could have stoned her to death. But after he had considered that, the scripture says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary to take her home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is the first vision. This is the first revelation of God through the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, to Joseph, God spoke to him and told him what to name his son and to take Mary as his wife. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with, great, will, will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union, no physical relationships with her until she gave birth to a son, and he, Joseph, gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, we read now in the second chapter, during the time of King Herod Magi, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. You know the story. Came to Jerusalem. The religious leaders were cognizant of the prophecy in the Old Testament as to where the Messiah was to be born. They were able to give the wise men directions. Unfortunately, they did not take the trip themselves. But the wise men went on those few miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And they came, as we read now in the 11th verse, on coming to the house. They need to underline that word. I'm going to say a word about it in a moment. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. 
when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Number two. The second time God has come to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now a word or two about this. On coming to the house, a different word than the word used in the Gospel of Luke regarding the manger. They were no longer living in the manger. They would move to a house. Different word, different place. Still in Bethlehem, they'd move to a house. Jesus was now probably a year and a half, nearly two years old. How do we know that? Do you remember Herod asking the wise men when they saw the star? And they told Herod, well, Herod was smart enough to calculate how long a journey it would take to get to Bethlehem from where they were. And so that's the reason Herod ordered all of the children two years of age and under to be killed. He wiped out that whole group. So Jesus wasn't an infant by then. He was a little boy running around the house. And suddenly, these men come knocking at the door. And Joseph opens the door. Here are these gifts. My, how they needed those gifts. They'd left home, and here they were, displaced persons, yet to be even more displaced. For the angel of the Lord came to Joseph in a dream and said, Go to Egypt, or they're going to try to kill, kill my son, kill the boy, kill Jesus. They needed that gold. They needed frankincense, which incense, which is very expensive, as was myrrh. They could sell those. Joseph was probably working as a builder, a carpenter, there in Bethlehem. Now he was going to be going with his little family to Egypt. The next time, the next time on the news, when you see people being displaced because of weather or floods or wars, whether it's in Africa or Southeast Asia or Central or South America, wherever it might be, whenever you see these rows and rows of displaced persons walking, remember your Savior was once a displaced person. He knows what it's like, and his family knew what it was like to be uprooted, forced into an environment they were not at all familiar with and not at all at home in. Here they are in Egypt. They needed that gold and frankincense and myrrh to survive the time until Herod died. Now the 19th verse. And after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Here he is the third time showing up, talking to Joseph. And he said, get up. Second time he tells him, get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, fourth time, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. 
he will be called a Nazarene. What a man. Four times the Spirit of God communicates to him. And four times he responds in instantaneous obedience. The first impression I have as I think about Joseph, for let me share with you that in thinking and reading and studying and praying about this for the last couple of weeks, I cannot find a sermon on Joseph in most I haven't found any in any of the great preachers that I read. In the 20 volumes of Spurgeon sermons, not one on Joseph. In the 18 volumes of Tedewitt Talmadge, not a sermon on Joseph. G. Campbell Morgan in Westminster Pulpit series, six volumes, not a sermon on Joseph. Not William Clow, not J.D. Jones, not Morrison. None of the great Scottish preachers kind of overlooked, ignored. This man of prayer, this man whom God selected to be the earthly father, to humanize God, to humanize the fatherhood of God and personalize God in a home, in a day-to-day -day relationship, at the breakfast table, working together, sharing together, worshiping together, playing together. Nothing about this incredible man. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that may startle you a little bit, but please stay with me. Jesus was taught. Jesus had to be taught. You read the scripture. When Jesus went to Nazareth, you know, he went to Nazareth and he says, and he grew in wisdom. Well, who taught him? Jesus grew in wisdom intellectually. He grew in stature physically. He grew in knowledge. He grew in relationship to others. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in relationship to God and to man. That's a mysterious passage to be sure. But here he is, this baby Jesus, had to be taught, and God selected his teachers, his mother and father, and the people in Nazareth to mentor him, to teach him. Joseph was selected to teach God. I turn to the book of Hebrews. And in the second chapter, I want to read you some scripture. I want you to think about it. Maybe you'd like to go home and further study this. I'm reading beginning in the ninth verse. It's following a quotation from the Psalms. And then the writer of the book of Hebrews of the book of Hebrews says this. In putting everything under him, that is under Jesus, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. There's no truer verse of scripture in the Bible than that. Everything is subject to him. God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we do not see the fulfillment of that, of everything being subject to him. It will come, 
That day is coming when he returns, when everything will be subject to him. But it's not yet. Not yet. But we see Jesus. Hebrews goes on. The writer goes on. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now here it is. In bringing many sons to glory, that is all of us, sons of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting, it was proper, it was the purpose that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make, M-A-K-E, should make the author of their salvation. Who's the author of our salvation? Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our salvation. That it was fitting and proper that God should make the author, create, process, that God should make the author of their salvation perfect. That doesn't mean just sinless, which he certainly was, but it means complete, fulfilled, totally mature, that God should make him perfect, fulfilled, complete, mature, through suffering. 14th verse. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, our humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those, free us, free those, free all of us, whose lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For this reason, 17th verse, for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers, like us, in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement For the sins of the people, because he sinned not. We did, but he made himself like us. The Bible says he became sin for us. That we, through his sacrifice, might be made like him. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted, tested, tried in the crucible of life, whatever it might be. And then in the fifth chapter... And the 8th verse, we read this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, from what he went through, from the life he experienced. He learned and once then made perfect, made complete, fulfilled. He became the source, therefore, of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is another marvelous subject in and of itself. Now, here's some words about hopeful explanation about this passage of Scripture that confounds any of us who read it. It's, it's mysterious to be sure. But what's happening here, what God's Word is telling us here, is that God taught His Son. God, the heavenly Father, taught His Son through an earthly father and through life's experiences and by and through the life of Joseph, He 
gave God a human face. He humanized God to Jesus. God learns. God learns. Now, I know that sounds strange. Think about it with me a moment. We normally learn, most of us think, of learning as a mental process. Well, there is a facet of learning that is a mental process, the accumulation of knowledge. But we do not only learn by the accumulation of knowledge. Now, God knows everything. God is the author of every idea. God is the source of life. God is not bound by time or by ignorance. But God learns. God learns in the sense that He takes on new experiences. Like we do. You read all the books in the world about being a parent. And you can know theory, and you can know ideas, and you can watch other people, but you do not learn it until you experience it. God learned through creation even. He created this world. And you learn something through that. He created us as free moral beings and gave us the right of choice, and we made the wrong choice. And so God begins to work through patriarchs and prophets. God is learning. God is expanding His knowledge not his theoretical knowledge, but his experiential knowledge through experiencing life with us. So in that sense, God grows experientially. Tells us that Christ was being made perfect, complete, fulfilled, to be an example to us, and not only an example to us, but a companion with us to give us strength in the time of our suffering. To give us strength in the time of our temptation. God learned experientially what it feels like to be a human being. He became like us. And he was taught by Joseph and Mary and the teachers at the synagogue and the teachers in Hebrew school. He was taught how to be a carpenter by his father. The character of Joseph rubbed off on Jesus and shaped his life. And isn't it interesting that the favorite word for God that Jesus uses is Father. And isn't it even more interesting that when Jesus starts talking about Father, he uses a word that no one had ever used before to describe God. He said he is Abba, Father. He's Daddy. Where did he learn that? To whom did he first say that? in a faltering, childlike way, in a humble home in Nazareth, he looked at Joseph one day and said, Daddy. And when he grew, 
after those 30 years in that home and went out to preach. He said, you want to know what God's like? He's Abba, Father. He's a daddy. He'll work with you in the carpenter shops of life. He'll work with you during the temptations of life. He'll help you with your homework. A God who's present tense. God who is present with you. So whatever we feel, God has felt. Whatever sorrow we've experienced, God knows what it is. He was tempted, tested, tried, suffered in every way like we. But he sinned not. But he understands us. He understands that temptation, a person can can only learn obedience when they've been tempted. A person can only learn courage when they're tempted to run. Joseph, character, taught Jesus. Another thing about the character of Jesus that I'm, uh, the character of Joseph that I'm sure influenced Jesus, it does me as I think about it, is his compassion. His compassion for Mary. He loved her. And he knew she was pregnant. And he could look at Mary, and he could look at God, and he could say, God, you know, and Mary, you know, I never touched you. But I believe you. And I'll put my arms around you. And these people in town, they talk about you. And they may talk behind your back. But I'll take you as my wife. Where do you think Jesus got his compassion? For people who were outcast. For people who were criticized. For people who were looked upon by the suspiciously religious of the day as being evil. Where do you think Jesus got his compassion? He saw Joseph put his arms around a woman bearing a child that was not his and says, you're my wife. Talk about compassion. This man exuded compassion. Don't you know how he felt down there in Bethlehem when they got there and he couldn't find a hotel room for his wife and about to deliver a child? Don't you know he was wringing his hands? Fortunately, some folks came around to help. Some shepherds showed up. And probably some women showed up. Generally, they do. They beat the shepherds there. It just doesn't record in the Bible. I'm certain of that. No, I'm certain of that. I've been to homes when sorrow strikes in the middle of the night, early in the morning. I have yet to get there before some of the women of our church are there. Women show up at a time of crisis better than men do. I'm sure that happened in that manger. There were some women there to help Mary. 
The men were standing around outside talking about something else. They didn't know how to handle that sort of thing. But you know Joseph was hurting that he couldn't do more for Mary. And then they get this word to go to Egypt in my soul. How are they going to get to Egypt? How are they going to make it? He'd probably gotten work there building some houses in Bethlehem. What's he going to do in Egypt? The wise men show up with gold and frankincense and myrrh. Don't you know how grateful he was? God is never on time, but he's never late, as somebody as well said. When they really needed it, he was there. God showed up. The compassion. He got back and he didn't want to take his little baby boy into the same area where Archelaus was because he wasn't sure but that he wouldn't be a duplicate of Herod. So God spoke to him and he went to Nazareth. Joseph was a caring man, a compassionate man. He was a man of faith. You talk about faith. Joseph was a man of faith. He believed. He believed God and acted instantaneously when God spoke to him. And he believed Mary. He was a man of faith. He was willing to risk. You know, faith and risk are synonyms. It was a risky thing to go to Bethlehem. It was a risky thing to go to Egypt. The Bible says we're to walk by faith and not by sight. And that's to be true of me, and it's true of you, and it's true of a, of a church. We're supposed to step out into the future. We're supposed to step out in Vision 2000. We're supposed to step out into the next century. Well, we need to step out in faith. We say, well, we don't have the money. Well, neither did Mary and Joseph. When God says, move, move. When God says, get up, get up. God didn't call this church to sit on its laurels. God called this church to get on its feet and to move. Say, well, where will the resources come from? Where did they come from to build this building? If our spiritual forefathers in this church had waited until they had all the money necessary, we wouldn't be sitting here today. We'd be sitting in the rain. Where did we get the children's building? Did we have the money before we started? No, we acted by faith. Faith that doesn't have risk to it denies faith. We calculate everything. We figure out we can do this and we can do this and we can do that. And then we say we're acting by faith. We don't need any faith at all. We've got it all mapped out. We don't even need the Holy Spirit. We can do it. If it's, if it's possible, we can do it. If it's a challenge, we need God and we do need God. And the needs out there are bigger than anything we can reach out and touch. But God doesn't want us to sit and twiddle our theological thumbs waiting for some sort of miracle to occur. He wants us to get up and move just like Joseph did. And if you can say amen and believe that, say amen and believe that. I heard two amens. <laughs> well, two or three of us can make a difference, and we will. I want to say one final word to me, the most important word probably of all that I've said. The thing that impresses me as much as anything else about Joseph is his courage. I've already alluded to the fact of how he, he seemed to be such an inclusive man, such an understanding man, such an affirming man, such a positive man, such a loving man. 
What man in the world would want to be like Joseph? As I thought about him, I prayed, oh God, help him. Forgive me for those times in my life raising Mike and Steve and Lisa when I wasn't the kind of man Joseph was, but help me to be a better, better father, better grandfather. I hope every man in this room will pray that. I pray for every woman in this world and in this church who wants to marry a Christian man that God will bring a Joseph into your life. Someone that's understanding, and compassionate, and caring, a man of faith, a man of courage, a man of patience. It took a lot of courage to walk around the streets of Nazareth. But you know it took courage for Joseph? He knew they were laughing at him. <laughs> I tell you, fella, you know, old Joseph, he's the best builder in town. He's the best carpenter I've ever known, but you know, he's kind of crazy. He married Mary when she was pregnant, and he believes this cockamamie story that, that the baby she was carrying was created by God. Can you believe that? Joseph's kind of off his rocker, but I tell you something, if you want somebody to make you a rocker, he can do that. <laughs> he's a good man, but he's a, little, he's a little weird. He went right on. Didn't try to explain, didn't try to defend himself. Give God time, my friends, because the, the cream will always rise. The truth will always come to the surface. He faced that. Here they're talking about Joseph's and Mary's illegitimate child. They used a different word probably than that. We have young children present, so that's the word I'm going to use. But that's not the word they used. Later on, it came back to haunt Jesus. You know that, don't you? Read the scripture. Ah, he's a, you know what? an illegitimate child. And I don't know that this happened, but I imagine it did. The day that Jesus was going to start school, Joseph and he were in the carpenter shop and Joseph stopped working. He said, Jesus, I need to talk to you. You're getting ready to go to school. And when you get there, the kids can be cruel sometimes. And you're going to hear them call you some names sometimes. And you're going to hear them say some, some things about your mother. But Jesus, I know you know this already in your heart. You know your difference. And I just want to encourage that, and I want to affirm that. Joseph, I want to remind you again, I'm not your daddy. God is. You're a miracle. And God is going to use you to save the world. 
So you be patient with those folks. They're going to say bad things about you. But you keep your head up because you know who you are and I know who you are and your mother knows who you are. You're God's son. And when you go to school tomorrow, I want you to be a man. More than that, son, you're going to be the God-man. The incarnation of God in human flesh. And I'm just your tutor, your stand-in father. And I'm here to pray for you and encourage you and stand beside you, and I trust you. You've put your faith in me as your father. I, as your earthly father, put my faith in you. Son, you'll do it. You're God and man in a mysterious combination I don't understand, but I believe because God told me. Thank God for Joseph. So when you see him just standing there in a manger scene, remember, he didn't just stand there in a manger scene. He was God's personal representative to his only son. Thank God for Joseph. And I invite you to do as Joseph did and as millions of others since have done. Put your faith in this God-man, this incarnation of God in human flesh. Put your faith and trust in him. You trust him as your savior, the eternal God will begin to do in your heart what he did in the life of Jesus. God's character will begin to rub off on you. God's compassion God's faith, God's courage, God's salvation. For he is the author and finisher of our faith. Would you trust him as your Savior today? Would you come to be a part of his church? The Bible says that Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. Shouldn't we who follow him give ourselves to it? He gave himself for it. God help us to give ourselves to it in faithful service, devotion. The invitation is to accept Christ. The invitation is to come join this church wherever you might be coming from, whatever church or no church, or to come in rededication as some did in the early service, to come for prayer as some did in the early service. I'll be here to greet you, to welcome you into the life and fellowship of this church. God bless you. As you come, let's stand and let's sing.